all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Hello, again. <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Follow us Insta X Facebook TikTok Twitch at All Bad Things Pod. Oh, also Blue Sky and Threads. Um, email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, our subreddit, and our Discord. Do all of those things. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. As usual. As per usual. Per usual. I've never uh, even attempted to download Blue Sky, so I don't know what, what's going on. You have on to have like there. a code. That's what I heard. You had to be invited or something. Yeah. Like that. I, I have no idea. I don't know how you. Well, I, mean, I don't know how to invite me. I know how we got one. <laughs> <laughs> we got it through our um, our friend and listener Atlanta, but oh, did, oh, okay, yeah, but um, I don't know how you go about getting one otherwise. I, yeah, no idea. So yeah, that seems a little too exclusive. <laughs> well, do you remember Gmail used to be a invite only thing? Uh, like not really because not really because I didn't have a Gmail account for a long time. I had a Yahoo account, and then I was like. I need something more professional. <laughs> My parents still have Yahoo accounts. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't get it. I really didn't get a Gmail account until I don't know, like 2012, somewhere around there. Hmm. But yeah, I, I have heard stories of like the people who, that were chosen for like the beta testing, and you had mm-hmm. basically like your first pick of email and stuff right. like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why there was the like the original. Um, the original like phantom everybody had all these original words where those everybody did, later down the road had to be like phantom 1983 and right, shit like right. that right yeah, uh-huh. so. <laughs> yep the early days of, of uh, interneting <laughs> well i mean gmail wasn't the early early days that was it kind of kind of is now it's kind of like in it the was... middle right now of, from where we started and where we are uh, sure, but it's not the early days. The early days is AOL.com. That's true. Yeah, that's true. You've got mail. Yep. I was um, Ivory Grand 88 I know. on I, AOL. I never had an AOL account. Ever. Really? Nope, never. Huh. I, I And I only got a Yahoo account because I got hired as a supervisor, remember, at MCI. So I uh-huh. had to get a, had to have an email set up and I was just like, Why didn't okay. you have a, a email from, for work? Because it wasn't all that common back then to have like your own work email. I don't know. Oh, so you they they insisted you had a personal one, but I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just... <laughs> you're getting you're in all the one the... who brought it up. I'm just asking <laughs> questions. You're getting in all the semantics. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that's why that's why I got it, and I still have that Yahoo email. Like yeah. Twenty three years later, mm-hmm. but now it's it's literally just where all the spam junk goes mail to die. Just, yes. Yeah. yeah. Like two times a year, I'll get something important on that. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. It's not even really that important. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have a listener script, a two parter listener script. Thank you very much. Yes. From Once again, Nicole. Yes. One of our loyal script contributors. And in fact, this is a, an important story to Nicole, a very important story okay. to Nicole. So, 
Um, this is the story of the deaths of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. Okay. So have you ever heard of this? I don't think I, I have. I don't think so. Okay. So this will be kind of new to us then. All right. I know what some of you are thinking. I know this because you've already read the episode title. And some of you know this story, or at least you think you do. Well, I guess it's not us. <laughs> we don't even think we know. We're just like, eh. Yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> and you're confused because, sure, there's disaster elements here, but this is about a murder. And all bad things does not cover crimes. I don't blame any of you for thinking this. If you know this story, you likely know it from the November 29th, 1987 Unsolved Mysteries special. Mm. And you walk away from that story thinking murder was involved. While some details of what really happened are impossible to know and always will be, this script is really talking about two disasters. What initially happened to these people and how sensationalist media, unreliable sources, and the nature of legends twisted it into something drastically different from reality. A year or so ago, in the spring of 2022, I messaged Rachel and asked her if it was okay to write a script where one of the theories involved is crime, or one of the theories involved crime, but that few people believed that it was. Her response was, well, I'm glad that Nicole noted it because I don't recall. (laughs) Um, If the general consensus is that it was not crime, we're okay with it. Sure. Are you good with that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because that's a, obviously that's what I said, so... Well, if you're asking people who looked into this for reasons other than wanting to tell a story or make entertaining television, that is indeed the general consensus. It is worth remembering that while technically telling true stories, there's a sentence consistently read out at the beginning of the classic Unsolved Mysteries episode with Robert Stack. What you are about to see is not a news broadcast. Huh. <laughs> I kind of remember that. Yeah. Do you? I, yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily. Definitely they saw some on, unsolved uh, mysteries. They've got it on Hulu, I think. No they've Netflix. Got on, they rebooted that it. it is? That's what but it, is. it was new stories. It's not the Robert Stack stuff. Remember, we watched some of it. We did. I thought mm-hmm. it's okay. not Robert Stack because he's long gone. No, I thought I was thinking that they had like the original show on like Hulu or one of those. Oh, oh, I, I don't think, know. Or an Amazon, maybe. Anyway. I also struggled for a long time, literally over a year, with, with if this would count as a worthy addition to the Death Of subseries within this show. The people involved in this story are not as well known as Bruce and Brandon Lee or John Denver. But in terms of if they are famous enough, well, everyone's knowledge base is different. I had absolutely no idea who Owen Hart, Jim Morrison, or Keith Moon were before this podcast. <laughs> To me, Jim Morrison is a contestant on the first season of The Mole. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The okay. first, the, like the original Mole, the first season. It would have been was... even better if it was Jim Morrison, if it was The Mole. <laughs> right. His, uh, his name was Jim Morrison. That's yeah. too funny. To American outdoor enthusiasts, national park enthusiasts, and specifically Grand Canyon enthusiasts, this is an incredibly famous story. It is widely considered one of the most memorable segments on Unsolved Mysteries, and it still surprises me how many people can at least go, aren't they the ones who, when I say their names. I genuinely do not remember first learning about it because I have known about it for so long. 
Relative to what they are known for, these people are similarly famous to the others that this podcast has covered. At one point, they made national news, and they're still talked about daily in the location this story takes place, even a century later. And they have a landmark named after them, so I'm counting it. I think that's oh, fine. Yeah. I Honestly, like, even as long as it's not, like, like I said, the general consensus isn't that somebody's death was a crime, it could very well, even if somebody's not that famous, it sure. could count for this podcast, so... Uh, one of the people involved has two dates of birth appearing in the historical record and might also be a member of the 27 Club, although I personally do not think so. Anyway, this is the story of the 1928 attempt of Glenn and Bessie Hyde to set a speed record on the Colorado River rafting through the Grand Canyon. Hmm. If successful, they'd become the first people to ride every rapid on the river, and Bessie would become the first woman to run the canyon in its entirety. Unfortunately, they did not appear as scheduled in Needles, California, and their story has become fodder for sensationalism and hyperbole. Anyone who knows them from Unsolved Mystery or from little blurbs in books on mysteries may be convinced murder was involved. As surely as I can say anything that is technically unknown, I can say that it was not. This script tells the true story of Glenn and Bessie, and the story of how sources get twisted to fit a narrative, how legends grow, and how the more salacious the rumor, or the more a rumor assists one's confirmation bias, the more it grows and propagates at the expense of one's character, often when, especially when, that person is no longer around to defend themselves. I do not tell this story in an entirely linear way, but part one is background and everything leading up to the Hyde's disappearance, and part two is untangling all the rumors and presenting the best sources of what actually happened. Hint, it is not murder even remotely at all. My sources include Arizona State University, the National Park Service, L.A. Times, historian Sandra Wagner Wright, Unsolved Mysteries, the book Brave the Wild River by Melissa L. Savigny, and Brad Dimmock's excellent book Sunk Without a Second, The Tragic Colorado River Honeymoon of Glenn and Bessie Hyde, in which he chases down every lead, every rumor, and even repeats their journey in a similar boat to understand what they accomplished and what they didn't, more accurately. That that's a lot. That's dedication for writing a book. Yeah. Boy. Dimmick is my it could be Dimock, I'm unsure. Dimmick is my primary source, and given he has a whole last book and a quarter century of experience as a whitewater guide, I can't possibly include everything. Have you ever um whitewater rafted? No, never have. Yeah, same. That that's legitimately dangerous. At this point, I, I don't think I would try it. But there was a time when I wanted to, you know, give it a try. But I was just never near a place where I could do that. So. Yeah, that's it's specific type of rapid, like water, right? It's, yeah. Oh it's yeah. It's very yeah. No, it's it's a. Uh... I have no knowledge of that. <laughs> I've never come <laughs> even close to doing something like that. Um, Demick and his wife's journey happened because they decided they should do it while they were very drunk. And then when sobering up, still thought it was a good idea. Yeah. That, uh, so they, it's not that they were um, <laughs> rafting drunk. Right. they thought of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They also thought they knew a lot about Glenn and Bessie Hyde, or at least everything there was to know except the specifics of what happened to them. 
Glenn was a foolish brute, a domestic abuser, a man with little to no experience in the outdoors, hell-bent on bringing his terrified wife into the record books at all costs. Bessie was a demure, timid woman who was forced down the Colorado River against her will. Remember those descriptors. After digging deep into the historical record, knocking on doors, driving to every corner of the country, studying the validity of existing and newly discovered sources, and running the river himself, Dimec, again, I'm not positive how to pronounce his name, comes away with a very different story. He opens his book acknowledging that there is no such thing as nonfiction. Huh. Every version of the truth is what the author believes to be true, but that sources vary in credibility and the quality of a source is based on how much it allows facts to drive their conclusions. For me, this acknowledgement immediately gives him legitimacy as a source as he looks critically at his own writings as much as he does the testimony of others. While it is certainly true that his emotions guide him as do everyone else's, He is easily the person alive with the most time spent researching the hides. There will be quite a bit of speculation in this script on his part, other historians, as well as by myself. And while all speculation must be taken with a grain of salt, there is informed speculation, which is different from wild, unsubstantiated rumor. And Dimmick is certainly qualified to speculate as his extensive research is what shaped his opinions and created the emotions he now has around the hides. His research is also what has shaped mine. Before I read this book as a young adult, I felt very strongly about what I thought happened, and that was driven by emotion. After reading it, he has changed my mind entirely, both on what happened as well as my opinion of some of the people involved in the story. I, too, used to think this was murder. It's, that's, it's always amazing when um, a piece of media, like, if it's a book or a TV show or a movie or something, makes you think differently about something. Well, I mean, and especially if it's your first kind of filter through that, your first experience to that, like you're mm-hmm. you're gonna remember it as like kind of what you first saw or what you first heard. Sure. You know mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's normal for. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because how it's first presented to you is most likely how you're always gonna remember it. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. And then it gets harder to change your mind of about course. it. Of course. Of course it does. Yep. The pages of his book dragged me kicking and screaming into a new opinion, no matter how much I tried to stick my head in the sand and continue to believe what I believed for my entire life. He has changed my mind because his research and conclusions make sense. And the more I dug into it on my own and the farther I got into my own formal education and learned how to vet sources properly and analyze them for the time period they appeared in, And honestly, the more I grew to care about these two people, the more I agreed with him. I admit I am very close to this script. Not in a surprise twist way. I'm not going to reveal that Glenn and Bessie are my grandparents on page 14. What I mean by close is I, like Brad Dimmick and many others who have really done a deep dive into this story, have grown attached to it and the people at the center of it. There's just something about them that draws people in. I just prefer that they are able to draw people in with their true story and not sensationalism and hyperbole. A review of Dimmick's book by High Country News already displays a lot of differences from what people think they know about the hides and what Dimmick thought he knew when he began his research. Quote, Dimmick wrote about two real people who gambled and lost. He writes with poise about Glenn's honor and Bessie's spunk. 
He draws a remarkable picture of Glenn's father, tenaciously clinging at first to thin hope, then left haunted by disaster. End quote. All right, so background. Glenn Roland Hyde was born in Washington State in 1898 to, oh, to Rulin. So it's 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 spelled R-O-L-L-I-N, okay. but then Nicole said, I think pronounced Roland. Roland, okay. Roland, Roland, Roland. R-U-L-L-E-N. You'd say Roland probably, right? Roland? Roland. It's R-U-L-L-E-N. Roland. <laughs> anyway, Roland. We'll go with Roland. <laughs> and Mary Hyde. The late 19th century financial struggles that gripped the nation resulted in many moves from Washington to Idaho to California to British Columbia and back to Idaho, during which time Glenn's mother and sister died just days apart, one grieving herself to death over the other. Jeez. I would, or, sorry, it was in Canada that Roland, who began going by R.C. after his wife's death. Thank you, Roland. Mm. That's a lot easier. <laughs> yes. And Glenn, now 15 years old, began boating. As Glenn grew older and more independent, he made friends who were similar to him in their longing for adventure and began taking long canoe trips, some six months long. That is very long. That is a... A six-month-long canoe trip? Like, yeah. What? I mean, obviously, you're like camping, camping out. Yeah. And, like, uh-huh. bring, yeah, you're not just out in the canoe the whole time. No. I, at least I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I me mean, too. Who knows? This is over 100 years ago, so maybe they were. Can you imagine, <laughs> like, when we were um, visiting your parents and we would go out on the boat for, like, what, an hour? Mm-hmm. That night, like, I would, I would lie down in bed and feel like we were on the boat. Oh, sure, of it, course. And yeah. so can you imagine just being in a canoe all day? I mean, people in the Navy have said that too. When you get yeah. when you get back on, on land, dry land, flat land, it feels unstable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. By the mid nineteen twenties, he and his sister Jean were partnering on river trips, and he grew fascinated with the sweep scow, a large wooden boat with a flat bottom and oars that jutted out in front and behind. This kind of boat is so closely associated with Glenn and Bessie Hyde. That plugging sweep scow into Google Images will bring up a photo of the scow in this story. I include photos later. He has, uh, it has, sorry, two large heavy sweep oars. The captain of the vessel used the front and the other person in the rear. That's, that's odd. You don't think of like that oars being front and back and not side to side. True. Not that we have much. <laughs> boating experience. Experience with that. Yeah. Well, it was a rowboat that we used that one time. It was. It? Yes, okay. It was. <laughs> the only time we've actually uh, been in charge of the rowing of any sort of boat together. We kayaked a couple times too, but like, yeah, like as an, in one single vessel, the two yes. of us. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was very early. That was that was a decade ago. Yes, it was. <laughs> Glenn and Jean Hyde ran a sweep scow down the Snake River. Oh, we've talked about that. Mm-hmm. An 1,100-mile tributary of the Columbia in 1926, and also ran the Salmon River, of which I believe Jean was the first woman to do so. The boat was somewhat difficult to steer compared to a canoe or rowboat, but it was sturdy and fast. Yeah, probably because of the weird oar in the front and oar in the back. Yeah. It quickly became Glenn's preferred vessel. In his life before 1927, Glenn traveled extensively in British Columbia, New Mexico, the Pacific Northwest, Montana, Alaska, and California, 
camping, fishing, climbing glaciers, and exploring caves and mountains. He was known in Idaho for swimming rivers that drowned anyone else who tried. While he did finish high school and go to college studying literature and debate at the at University of Oregon, Glenn Hyde did not find himself at home in the confines of cities. Yeah, if you're used to, like, bopping around. The wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... The city is a wilderness in itself, <laughs> but, it's, fair. but it's not like the Concrete actual jungle. <laughs> right. But it's not like the actual wilderness. Yeah. No, not, no not, rapids. <laughs> nobody's gonna like roll out downtown and set up a tent. <laughs> no, well, not generally. Well, well, let's hope not. Yeah. Not, yes. Primarily, people who are experiencing homelessness are. The I wasn't meaning it that. Way. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know you. <laughs> like nobody's camping, recreationally no. camping. Yeah. <laughs> no. Like, what you guys doing? Like, what does it look like? <laughs> We're adventurers. <laughs> yeah. Bessie Hyde was born Bessie Louise Haley on December 29th, either in 1901 or 1905. Yeah, th- that time of history, there's birth dates are all over the place sometimes. They're getting better, but... Uh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but still, yeah. Mm-hmm. Flimsy at best. Yeah. In 1926 and 1927... She wrote a book of poetry, and in the published online version of the book, she's noted as living from 1901 to 1928, making her 27 years old at the time this story takes place. It is possible she falsely gave a birth year of 1901 at the time she wrote it. However, we know the years she was in high school, we have her yearbooks, and everything but a couple stray sources and her unpublished book of poems gives her year of birth as 1905. She was, at the youngest, nearing her 23rd birthday when she died. Yeah, Yeah, pretty young. Right now, this may not seem important, but people familiar with the Unsolved Mysteries segment may be confused, as in it she is explicitly stated to be just 18. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's way off. Yeah, that's (laughs) Samsonite. Yeah, Samsonite, that one. Way to to go, uh... Robert Stack. Yeah, way to go, Bob Stack. (laughs) Bobby Stack. Bob Stack, that one. (laughs) I will speculate here and say I believe she was purposefully made younger in that segment because some of the rumors that came out later sound much worse if we believe the couple was 18 and 27 instead of either 22 and 29 or 27 and 29. Yeah, that that would (laughs) just come across a lot different. Bessie was 22, though. I'm very confident. Okay. But yeah, there is a difference between being like... Uh, 22 and 27 or something and, and 18 of course and there is. It's a huge difference. <laughs> yes. Like, I mean, like, let's see, like, like 43 to 48. It's not really, right. not really much, you right. know? <laughs> but, uh. But when you're, you're still like, I mean, you're still a, developing. A still like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Bessie's family moved from Maryland to Pennsylvania when she was a young child And it was at her high school that Bessie met Earl Helmick. Earl was a member of the gardening club, Bessie and the debate (laughs) club, and they worked together on the yearbook. Back at that time, the gardening club would have been really important. Yes, (laughs) like like the survival skill. Yes. (laughs) It's not just a hobby. No. (laughs) They didn't have it just to be like, oh, well, that that one didn't work. Right. It's like, no, they had had a fucking garden Uh so they could use it to to eat. Right. (laughs) In 1924, after graduation, Earl moved to Ohio for work and Bessie went to college in West Virginia. 
Off of a birth year of 1905, Bessie graduated high school a few months after her 18th birthday. If Bessie was 18 in 1928, she would have begun high school at nine years old and graduated seven months before her 14th birthday. She was not 18. Shut the fuck up, Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, that's just, yeah. All right. In 1926, when Bessie and Earl were 20, they traveled to Kentucky and married in secret with the minister's family as witnesses. This was a surprise to both of their families. Just weeks after the wedding, Bessie traveled alone to San Francisco and she and Earl would never live together as husband and wife again. She never used the surname Helmick. It's very unusual for this time of history, that's for sure. Years later, Bessie's brother said that Earl had told him that they got married because Bessie was pregnant and that she'd gone to California to have an abortion. We do not know if she was pregnant and if she was, if she miscarried, terminated, or gave the baby up for adoption. Hmm. I am not entirely sure if Earl was telling the truth, as they would not have had to get married if the plan was to sneak her off somewhere far away to take care of the pregnancy, but I'm sure there were nuances that only Earl and Bessie knew. I like to pretend that they got married because they wanted to sleep together. Bessie found her un- herself unimpressed and was like, boy, bye. <laughs> yeah. Note, I don't actually think this is what happened. <laughs> Bessie stayed in San Francisco for most of 1926 into the beginning of 1927, enjoying its hippie vibe, brimming with nonconformists. She studied painting and drawing and practiced her writing, composing the 50 poems in her volume entitled wandering leaves while working at what was described as a bohemian bookstore one of your faves (laughs) i do love a bookstore (laughs) do you love a good bookstore several of bessie's poems seem to express her love of adventure and seeking seeing the world not letting opportunity pass her by while she lived what she would have considered a mundane existence one reads quote some ships sail from port to port following contentedly the same old way while others, who through restlessness watch new seas at the break of day, end quote. Another reads, quote, The mass of people never know the fullest meaning of this life. They jog along the even way, always avoiding thought and strife. So placid and content they seem, existing ever on and on. I'd rather have my blackest night that I may see the bright red dawn, end quote. Hmm. After years of thinking about it, I got one of Bessie's poems tattooed on my arm in 2023. It is structured in the same way Bessie formatted the original and reads, I'm going to read it on the, because Nicole gave a picture. Sure. We of the night will know many things of which you sleepers have never dreamed. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it is. It looks good too. It does. It looks great. Very nice. While in California, Bessie lived with a nude model named Elaine. That's an interesting name. It's like, did you mean to name your kid Elaine? Elaine Or Irene? No, it's it's spelled like Elaine, Elaine. but with an R instead of an L. Elaine. Elaine. (laughs) I feel like Scooby-Doo saying it. Yes, right. Elaine? Yeah. Yeah, they were in the mystery machine that night. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right, so a nude model named Irene, who at age 14 had shot and killed her boyfriend in what she said was self-defense. Jeez. Jeez. Yeah. The two became very close friends during their time as roommates. 
Arraine had dreams of Hollywood and eventually persuaded Bessie to accompany her on an overnight steamer to Los Angeles. In February of 1927, that one night changed both of their lives forever. Arraine left the ship as Greta Grandstead, who would have a 30-year career of bit parts in Hollywood and nearly one dozen husbands. Wow. I mean... <laughs> Do you get married, like, every other year? I, you kind of have to. You have to keep up a pace, <laughs> yeah, like right? Nine months? Like, okay, next 15 one. 15 months? Next one, gotta find the yeah. next one. Wow. It might have been, like, a contest towards the end. Like, trying, <laughs> right? to, trying to get in Guinness or something like that. <laughs> right. Bessie Haley walked off the ship with Glenn Hyde. Oh. The timeline moves quickly here, as Glenn and Bessie seem to have fallen in love almost immediately. It was the last days of February 1927 when they met on the steamer, and by the end of summer, she'd already traveled back to his home in Idaho, met his family, and gone camping with them in the Sawtooth Mountains. Yeah, that's a that's that's not a a small amount of travel in this in this point in time. No, yeah, you're, it you're takes a ta- lot to do that. You're not taking a plane no. back then. <laughs> no, because there's not really much commercial flight at this Hardly point. Hardly any. At least like, not for average people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Lots yeah, of trains. Yep. Trains and cars. 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 Yeah. No interstates. Oh, and steamships and stuff. Yeah. Glenn and Bessie, according to Dimmick, quote, had a tremendous amount in common. Both were extremely bright and had been active in drama and debate and were talented writers. Both were uncommonly good looking. Each had a yen for the extraordinary, for adventure, for travel, end quote. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is funny. Uh, Scriptwriter note, regarding them being uncommonly good looking, I have an intense crush on Bessie and absolutely agree. Lee is not the only one who, as Rachel puts it, loves a good historical lady. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot speak to Glenn's attractiveness on account of my lesbianism. Don't flip ahead now because location is important. But there are photos of them later on. Okay. Okay. We will not flip back. Glenn's extended family were alarmed that he was in love with, quote, a bohemian. Mm. (laughs) I think that in the past that meant like a hippie, kind of. Or, yeah. A nonconformist. Yeah, somebody that's like new age, kind of. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah, not Mm -hmm. traditional. Yes. Yes. Um, But they could not deny that Glenn and Bessie were both what we would call ahead of their time. Both were considered progressives in every way, and they cared more about adventure than they did about tradition and what society deemed appropriate, or in Bessie's case, ladylike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bessie had not had the outdoorsy upbringing that Glenn had, but their mutual love of the outdoors and desire to see the world came up early in their conversations. And at the end of the summer of 1927, Bessie took Glenn east to meet her family, introducing him as the man she was going to marry. Promptly, Earl Helmick showed up to claim his wife. Bessie asked him for a divorce, and Earl refused. Glenn got involved in an argument with Earl, and according to Bessie's younger brother, Bill, both men came out of the argument having, quote, made fools of themselves. Uh, <laughs> End yeah. quote. I'm not sure why Earl was resistant to the idea of a divorce. He and Bessie had hardly lived together as a married couple. He had not seen her in over a year, and he would have known that Bessie could argue before a judge that he wasn't supporting her financially because he wasn't. To get ahead of it, get ahead of it and make the whole thing seem his idea, he could easily have filed himself, regardless of whatever the truth was, 
Glenn and Bessie were declaring their love for one another, stating their intent to marry, and had been running around the American West largely unsupervised for nearly six months at this point, and Earl could have absolutely argued adultery in front of a judge. Yeah. Hmm. If he had, I don't think Bessie would have cared whether it was true or not. She just wanted to marry Glenn, however she got there. Glenn and Bessie returned to Idaho, Idaho having not resolved anything with Bessie's parents or with her current marriage. But no one ever accused Bessie Haley of not being able to solve her own problems, and the ultimate path to a marriage to Glenn involved her moving to Nevada at the end of 1927, moving in with a woman named Delpha, and waiting the six weeks required to become a legal resident, as Nevada had the laxest residency requirements in the country. Bessie struggled in Nevada. She missed Glenn, she had little to no money, and those who knew her at the time said she was quiet, kept to herself, spent most of her time writing to Glenn, and more than once passed out from hunger. Jeez. Jeez. All right, then. (laughs) After establishing residency, Bessie filed for divorce, which would require Earl to come to Nevada to contest. Okay, now I see. She's playing the long game here. Yeah, and also at this time... uh, the building of the Hoover Dam is going on at this time, right? Or was that in the 30s? Mm, I thought we that did was a whole the... script about it. I know. <laughs> they finished it in like night or started it in 1930. Oh, goodness. Like, damn it, I can't remember. Damn but that's... Hoover Dam it. <laughs> Hoover Dam it. But that's either happening or about to happen. I think it's that's a, why. In this ballpark, yeah. And that's why there, there's the mention of the, you know, relaxed citizenship laws because they, they just fucking need The residency, yeah. They just need whatever workers they could get. Plus, in the West, it's still not as occupied as the East. No. So. No, or those populated are. Those as are the, like some of the last states of, mm-hmm. the, of the United Union. States. Right, exactly. Supposedly. Mm-hmm. All right, so he would have had to come to Nevada to contest if she filed for divorce. He did not do so in the required time frame. And on April 11th, 1928, Bessie went before a judge. After verifying that, yes, she was a resident of Nevada, Delpha testified to this, informing the judge that she and Earl had no children and that while she was in San Francisco, she said she and Earl had agreed she would go there for school. Earl had never sent her money and, quote, had seemed totally indifferent whether I came, whether I came home or not, end quote. Hmm. Bessie was granted the divorce and returned to the name Bessie Haley, which was all she'd ever answered to anyway. No one knows Earl's thoughts on these events. Uh, 60 years afterwards, when collected, oh, sorry, <laughs> that was not the word. 60 years afterward, when called uh, to ask a about an interview, Earl heard Bessie's name and immediately reply, replied, quote, I don't want to discuss it. She is dead, end quote, before hanging up. Yeah, okay. okay. Earl married again in 1930, had four children, also outlived his second wife, and died at age 90 in 1995. Okay, wow. well. Okay. Why didn't you just give your first wife her damn divorce, obviously? That's a, what an interesting time span to be alive. Like right. al- almost the entire 20th, 20th century. century. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not quite there for the beginning. Didn't quite make it to the end. Yeah, but, I <laughs> that's mean, true. Saw it, no turns of centuries. Right. It was like a classic. It was like a classic Barry Sanders run. Like he has so many like 50, 60, 70 yard runs where he didn't score a touchdown. Ah. Uh, and it's just like, how is that? Like, how do you right. keep doing that? <laughs> But yeah, that's that's 
That's a long and interesting time it to would be alive. Be. Uh-huh. Both World Wars. Yep. The 60s. Yep. Like, yeah, that's, that's And you left you left like right when the internet is about to become a thing. Yeah. Mhm. So, yeah. yeah. That's that's crazy. I like how you say you you left just like, "Oh, you walked out the door. You decided so, yeah. to well, you peace did. out." <laughs> sort of, yeah. in, in a sense. Uh-huh. You're like, "Yes, I'm done." <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> pip pip. Good pip, night. Pip, cheerio. Bessie's temporary residency in Nevada was one day's journey from Glen, and as soon as her divorce was finalized, she headed for Twin Falls, the two marrying on April 12th, 1928, just one day later. Yeah, she got divorced on April 11th, and they married the next day. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It's a turnaround. Yeah. Glen's family was in attendance, and they did not disclose Bessie's status as a divorcee to the reverend, as that would have resulted in refusal to perform the ceremony. It still does in some churches. Yeah. Or it could get annulled real fast if they find out. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Whatever. Noteworthy here is that Bessie, from that day forward, called herself Bessie Hyde or Bessie Haley Hyde, whereas she kept using her maiden name when she was married to Earl, even though she was legally Mrs. Helnick. Now, I will not change my last name if I ever get married. I already have a last name. My little sister did change her surname when she married. People are free to do what they want in this regard, but the expectation that a woman changes her last name is dated and sexist. I agree, Nicole, and I did not change my name. I kept, I agreed. I, I already have a last name. Also, your last name is not good in computers. So. <laughs> um, I also do not think that women who keep their birth surnames love their partners less than women who change them. Correct. Oh, yeah. That is both sexist and heteronormative. <laughs> That's right. And there are... Se- you see why Nicole and I get along so well? I do. And there are several logical reasons behind either choice. That said, I do think it's noteworthy that Bessie did not use the last name Helmick during her first marriage, but happily adopted the surname Hyde upon her marriage to Glenn. Yeah, it could yeah. be like... Well, she always... She never really was super into the first marriage, maybe. Right. I was going to... Maybe it's just a, a, a way to move on. Mm-hmm. You know... Just a yeah. All right, I'm starting over, and now I'm going to be this person. Yeah, that could be too. Mm-hmm. So, Glenn bought Bessie a dog and a horse, and by all accounts, she thrived in the outdoorsy environment. She and Glenn spent time riding horses, swimming in the rivers, and Glenn taught Bessie about running rivers and riding rapids. They were together constantly, although not always alone. Glenn was very close to his father and sister, and Bessie seemed to fit in, fit right in with the family. They lived in a bungalow on some property Glenn owned near Glenn's father's farm. And there are photos of Glenn and Bessie on their horses and a drawing of Glenn that Bessie did. Oh, okay. That's really, oh, that's yeah. really nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice shading. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So she could write poetry and draw. Very artistic. Tends to go, uh, artistic people, like, there seems to be, like, a realm. Like, they're, they're kind of good or very good at a few things, and then they can do other things, like, really well like draw, write, paint. You know, they, they, they seem to all kind of go hand in hand. I can Play do, music. I can do know. music, but that's about, I, my drawing is terrible. You can, you can knit. Yeah, uh, that's uh, true. Stuffed animals. That's true. <laughs> I did do a lot of that. Yeah, that's that was true. pretty artsy. That's true. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, that, that's, that's not surprising that artists, people in that, in mm-hmm. that realm are kind of a little, you know, they're, 
the kind of like MacGyver's at art. They mm-hmm. kind of do it all a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or have multiple creative pursuits kind mm-hmm. of, yeah. Did I, so I know Nicole is a horse person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a weird a, way a to say person. it. But you know, like someone who likes horses and has an interest <laughs> in horses. Alex Jones is going to take that, that little <laughs> bit of clip right there and be like, see, I told you. They're if talking, I were important They're talking enough. about it on all bad things. <laughs> But have you ever ridden a horse? I have not. No. Okay, yeah, Another thing that I. I always wanted to do, but, really? but at this point I'm like, uh. Yeah, I, I've i always been a little scared of horses. They're fucking huge. Well, when we met the Clydesdale well, those, those are Bush. Those are extra big. They're huge horses. But even like regular size horses yes. are still fucking big. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. they're a little, they're, they're a little intimidating. Yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> so. Although I thought that, oh, I forget his name, the little horse, big giant horse we met at the brewery. I can't remember either. He had a funny name, like a fun name. But anyway, he was very gentle. Yes. He seemed like a nice guy. Yes. It was, like, <laughs> was like five feet above our heads. Yes, he was huge. He was very, very huge. <laughs> Bessie's brother Bill came out to visit that summer of 1928, and the three of them worked the farm together, although this was not enough for the couple, who were, according to Dimmick's research, uh, quote, were young, intelligent, progressive, and very much in love. Neither had any interest in spending the rest of their lives on an Idaho spud farm, end quote. And they lived in a time of records and firsts. That's true. Like, I could see that being around this time, yeah. Oh, yeah. The 1920s saw George Mallory and Andrew Irvine disappear while attempting to summit Everest, Mm. and to this day it is unable to be confirmed whether or not they were, in fact, the first to stand atop the peak. Yeah, if you you (laughs) don't live to tell the tale. They didn't have a videographer, they didn't have any drone footage. Or witnesses. Nor nor did they have a GPS. Mm -hmm. So it's like, maybe they did. Yeah, maybe, not maybe sure. Maybe they didn't. I hope for their sake that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? The same decade saw Charles Lindbergh, the Nazi fuckwit himself, <laughs> cross the Atlantic, and just two months after Bessie married Glenn Hyde and dropped the surname Haley for the first time in her life, Amelia Earhart also crossed the Atlantic. The newspapers were filled with stories about records being broken, and it also included attempts and successes to run the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Per the National Park Service, the Grand Canyon, quote, in northern Arizona, encompasses 278 miles of the Colorado River and adjacent uplands. Located on the ancestral homeland of 11 associated tribes, Grand Canyon is one of the most spectacular examples of erosion anywhere in the world, unmatched in the incomparable vistas it offers visitors from the rim, end quote. Hmm. Yes, I've been there. Shocker. (laughs) We have not. We've not. That's definitely on the list. That would be pretty amazing. Yeah, the, the one time we had a chance to go there, it would have been too hot to go anyway when we were in Vegas. Too hot and it would have taken like... Yeah. A lot been a of time. Whole day, yeah. maybe a little more, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, one of these days I do want to see it because I've heard it's just like incredible. Oh it, well, a truly a one of a kind yes. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the summer of 1928, Glenn and Bessie Hyde began making their own plans to appear in the historical record. Glenn believed that the sweep scow, his boy, boat of choice. Uh, would help them set a speed record down the river and through the canyon. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, just, oh, you know, down the river and through the canyon. Yep. You mean the 278 <laughs> miles through the, the Grand Canyon? <laughs> That's the one. Yes. Um, <laughs> Good luck. 
and for Bessie, she'd become the first woman to ride the Colorado all the way down. That's, that's a fucking, I mean, yeah. I mean, really, all sorts of, I mean, in sports, all sorts were... Yeah. In, like, <clears throat> all elements of, like, humanity at this point, like, all sorts of new shit is happening. Yep. I mean, really. Very pivotal. Yes. Time. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. The two began training and reading everything they could on what was known about the river. Glenn excited to... Oh, Glenn excited to introduce his wife to such an important part of his life, and Bessie excited to start a lifetime of adventure with her husband. Aw. Hmm. Knowing that this doesn't go well. Yeah. That's sad. Part of why their trip is so famous is the angle that they were hun- uh, is the angle that they were honeymooners, but initially the plan was not to go by themselves. R.C. Hyde was to join them, but as he could not swim, he ultimately opted out. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, <clears throat> you know, another, another option would be to learn how to swim, just saying. That would but be. Uh, but if you, know. if you haven't already. Yeah. Then, why don't you opt out of that yeah. one? Jean, Glenn's sister, was also invited, but while she later, she later said she did want to go, once R.C. dropped out, so did she, because she would... Now she would be essentially third-wheeling a honeymoon. Yeah, that would be very (laughs) odd. Yeah. So in the fall of 1928, Glenn and Bessie headed out for Utah alone. And the section is the voyage of rain in the face. Okay. Upon arrival in Utah, Glenn set about building another scow, taking care to make sure it could hold all of their things and even installing bed springs inside. Hmm. They supplied themselves with plenty of food and clothing, a rifle, their journals, cooking supplies, and a camera. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. This is past, like, super early days of photography. Glenn named it Rain in the Face after a Sioux man who some claim killed General Custer. Huh. Hmm. Some river runners were concerned about the style of the boat, remarking that it, quote, looks like a floating coffin, end quote. Ooh. When asked if yeah, that's not good. When asked if he was really going to run the Colorado in a scow, Glenn replied, "replied quote I've run the Salmon River, I've run the Snake, I can run anything." End quote. Ooh, a little overconfident there, Glenn. When asked if they were taking life preservers, Glenn's response was something to the effect of, "We know how to swim." Yeah. <laughs> We know how to swim. That's why the guy who yes. didn't know how to swim didn't come with us. Exactly. Yeah, because if, if we get like hit in the head by a rock and get knocked out, we still know how to swim. We know how to float. Just hope it stays up. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> Just basic shit. I mean, yeah. people were fucking nuts back in this time. People have always been nuts. <laughs> In his defense, life jackets were not the norm yet for Idaho. They were commonly... <laughs> Idaho. Yeah, for Idaho. <laughs> what is that even supposed like what to a, mean? What other states were like in the norm? Like, like, is Idaho just behind in everything? Maybe. Is, is there a saying back in this time? Well, or? I mean, it could be a little bit because it's more rural. I don't know. No, it'd be funnier if it was like a saying back then. Oh, no, here you go. They were commonly used by those local to the Grand Canyon, but it was more of a regional difference in norms than a stubborn refusal to take established industry standard common sense precautions 
Unlike, say, a rich guy bragging to a news reporter that he knows that carbon fiber is not supposed to be used in a deep-sea exploration, but that he was going to do it anyway because we as a society prioritize safety over innovation too much. Oh, no, I'm being mean to rich people again. <laughs> <laughs> I still, uh... So that, that was about the Titanic submersible. Yes, correct? that was about the submersible, yeah. <laughs> I still, the... I mean, it's not funny, but it kind of is. But the onion, art, the onion headline that I saw the next day after that happened, I mean, like, um, what did it say? It, it said, uh, um, like, researchers agreed like the submersibles should have been tested on poor people first. Oh like, no! Something. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Something, it was something yeah. of that nature, and I was just Sounds like, about right. I was just like, uh huh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> How do you think they got those billions of dollars? Yes. <laughs> By testing shit on poor people. Yep. Glenn and Bessie embarked on their adventure on October 20th, 1928. Seven days into the journey, they entered Cataract Canyon. What a weird name. Um, also known as the Graveyard of the Colorado. Oh, dear. No, that's, that's, not... that's not good. Glenn. Like if it's a like if it's like a place like if it's like a site like if it's like an actual burial site that you can go and visit. Oh sure, like then, that'd then be one thing. Okay, right. But if it's just this thing where like for some reason a lot of mayhem happens and people come up missing, I'm gonna skip that. One. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Glenn and Bessie had read everything they could get their hands on about this section of the river, and often would secure the scow and walk up ahead to survey and plan their route. With the boat's limited steering capabilities. They had to stop it far in advance so they knew where in the river they needed to steer around. See, I I still am like, okay, they read everything they could get their hands on, but it's 1928. Correct. So it's probably like two books. Oh no, there's, <laughs> and a, there's pamphlet a lot of or something. there's a lot of different mapping things, but it's individual and it's it's people not they, they don't there's no <laughs> there's no freaking sonar or anything no. at this point. So you don't know where, and certain you could have gone through an area that was, you know, five feet higher than it normally is because mm-hmm. it's early spring. Whereas, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're not going to see those shoals like that's at that true. time. Mm-hmm. You know. Whereas, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yes. With that shit. Uh-huh. Good. Good luck with anything in 1927. Good luck with life in <laughs> yeah. 1928. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I I don't want to go back like any further than. I don't want to go back. I did say. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like, <laughs> like, it's like shit wasn't as wild in a lot of ways, but I just don't want not the internet. Yeah, <laughs> I want the internet. A little bit. I want yeah. my switch. Yes, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I'd, I'd be willing, well, no, I was going to say I'd be willing to go back to like 2017, but fuckface was president, so I don't know that I want to go back to that time yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> this was... The we don't want to go back corner. Yes. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah. So they would do this throughout their journey uh, when they were able, and for the most part, the materials they studied. I am so sorry, Nicole. I am not yawning at you. And I'm also not yawning because it's um, midnight. We're not recording at midnight for once. Just a, a leap out of insomnia. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's all. All right. Um... And for the most part, the materials they studied gave them a heads up where they need to go, uh, or sorry, a heads up on where they need to do so. On one of the first rapids, Bessie, who weighed just 90 pounds, just a tiny thing, was launched from the scow. 
Glenn pulled her back in the boat. Jeez. During some, I guess that's, but I guess her only being 90 pounds, like the downside is she can just get like launched from oh, the boat. Hell, even the upside is that he can grab her. You're, you're correct. You pull her back in. That's true. It's, it's a double-edged sword, but right? you know, hopefully you get the right one. <laughs> During some of the harder rapids to come, Glenn would manage to manage both sweep oars while Bessie crouched down. Oh no, so that she wouldn't fall out. But according to their journals, Bessie usually managed the rear sweep and at times even captained the scow herself. River runners who met them along the way report that it was Bessie's weight, not a lack of skill or bravery, that hampered her. So she was just like too light to stay in the boat. That's wild. That's, yeah, that's, that's how it sounds anyway. Mm-hmm. More than once in Cataract Canyon, the scow caught, got caught in an eddy or an area of river where the rapids forced sections of the water back upstream, effectively halting anything trying to move downriver. I've heard of an eddy before and I never knew what that was. To this day, boatmen who run the river regularly are baffled at how Glenn and Bessie made it through this section intact in 1928. They moved on with greater confidence that what lay ahead couldn't possibly be that bad. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, dear. On November 1st, they scrawled their last name into rock along with the date, marking their presence and their progress. Eerily, considering what was to become of the couple, this carving is now underwater beneath man-made oh. reservoir Lake Powell. I was just wondering, like, can you is see this? this? Yeah, it's be... still there. Yeah. On November 8th, Glenn wrote to his father, letting him, so this is, let's see, like almost three weeks into the trip, letting him know that they were two days ahead of schedule and that the two were, quote, enjoying the trip immensely, end quote. Yeah, Bessie loves getting launched out of the boat. Yes. <laughs> and I'm getting, I'm getting real strong by pulling her back <laughs> yes. in. She's like, a cup of tea, darling. <laughs> He notes that his wife's condition he notes his wife's condition and appetite, saying that, quote, Bessie is feeling fine and eating everything but the boat, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> and mentions that he didn't find Cataract Canyon to be as difficult as reported. He asked RC to, quote, give my regards to Barney, end quote. Barney being his favorite horse. <laughs> mm. Glenn also wrote to his family cryptically, quote, I'd quit River here, not on my own account. But from what they tell us, we are over the worst water. End quote. Hmm. Historians have argued for a century over what this means. Some say he had been feeling pressure to quit from the people they met, and others use this as proof that Bessie had cold feet. It is an odd comment given that Bessie seemed happy in her own writings. Glenn reported himself and Bessie feeling well, and as they both thought they were past the worst rapids, it made little sense that they'd be thinking of stopping now. I will discuss later what I think in part two, which is neither of the above explanations. As they, pa you know what, it would be um, uh, po possibly something I could think of is like the, that the sentence almost kind of doesn't make sense and that it was just like a weird miswriting yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, that's, that, having written many a script, it's very easy to just completely miswrite. That's very true. <laughs> Um, as they passed by Lee's Ferry, a trading post operator reported that he had seen them, assisted in their resupply, 
tried to get them to stop their journey, but noted that both, Bessie in particular, showed, quote, no inclination to quit. Okay. Oh, this is them leaving that place, that trading post, Lee's Ferry. That's pretty cool. Yeah. On November 12th, Glenn wrote home again, reporting rainy weather, which soaked them even under their tarp, and once again asked how the horses were doing. Glenn, Glenn, the horses are fine. Enough with the horses. Enough with with the horses, Glenn. (laughs) Bessie wrote to her sister-in-law, Jean, about all the different types of scenery that they'd seen, and also gave her regards to the horses and her dog. The horses. These damn horses. (laughs) If you love the horses so much, why don't you stay home with them? Why don't you marry them? (laughs) Remember that from, like, elementary school? If you like so much, why don't you marry it? I also remember it from, uh, like, gay marriage becoming legal. Well, what now? Will you be able to bury a horse? Like, no, you fucking weirdos. Like, is that what you want? Is that what you want? Because you're talking about it a lot. it's kind of how it's sounding. You're being very weird about this. Nobody else brought this up except for you. (laughs) So. Oh, man. Uh, Later, Glenn fell into the water at Sockdalager Rapid after getting hit with one of the sweep oars. Oh, he was briefly knocked unconscious. Trying twice to climb back in before doing so with Bessie's help. Wow. Don't need a vest. Man. Yeah, right? (laughs) He's lucky because if she's... so. She's like yeah, a little forget. thing, and he right. can he can grab her. But what's she supposed to exactly. do? Exactly. Yeah. Like well, I mean, I guess. I guess she can. helped. Yes. Yeah. She wrote that she was ready to scale the canyon wall right then and there, and that Glenn had laughed when she had said so. But that night, she wrote about how beautiful the canyon was, how wonderful the clouds were, and how the brief snowstorm they encountered was short but lovely. Hmm. <laughs> okay. These two are kind of made for each other, it seems. <laughs> Especially with the horses. Actually, actually a lot of bits. <laughs> yes. Quite a bit. The two would frequently photograph each other and also frequently got out of the scow to scout um, upcoming rapids. Scout to scout. Scout to scout. Scout the scow. Scout to scout. <laughs> band, band name, we're taking that. Okay. 70 years later, Brad Dimmick and his wife, on their recreation trip down the river, got caught in the same whirlpool, which likely took Glenn out of the scow at Sokdalager, and they required assistance from others nearby to get them out. Well, remember we saw uh, that whirlpool uh, in Niagara Falls. Yes, because yeah, it, it the, was like the, the cable cars. Yeah. Yes, because uh-huh. it was like the world's really only like class six rapids because two class fives were coming together. Right. Which is why it made that whirlpool. Mm-hmm. It was just like, you can't. Like, go you can't get out of that. You no, go into no, it, you don't get out. Exactly. <laughs> wow. But yeah, that was pretty cool to... It was cool. <laughs> to hover above. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and only that. Yes, yes, exactly. Dimmick is shocked that the Hydes managed to work themselves through it on their own. Right? Especially in like 1928. In, uh, in this scow or whatever. <laughs> this thing. <laughs> so odd. <laughs> it's definitely not a motorboat. I can tell you that. Well, you can kind of see it here. The yeah. oar in the front and the oar in yeah, the back. Yeah, it's, it's this, yeah, it's a giant thing. Yes, it is. It was around this time that they gave their first formal interviews about the adventure, talking to a reporter from the Denver Post who had inquired as to their objectives. One of the things Bessie said in this interview seems to be the origin story for rumor later, so I will save it for part two when we talk about that, because I feel she's been 
deliberately misquoted to add fuel to an unfair narrative, but she was quoted extensively that day, and of the media coverage the Hydes got during their lifetimes, she was the media darling of the two. Hmm. Well, it was probably novel, right? Because she's a woman. Lady true, Adventure! That's, that's true. Yeah, especially for this time. You could see them making like a newsreel of these two. Yeah, now that I took, got a better look at this thing, it's basically uh, the 1928 version of um, a pontoon boat. Is what, they're, is what they have. This big wooden apparatus but kind of thing. don't pontoon boats have, like, those two ski-like things? They do, but, I mean, and these are two huge oars, but it's in the same sense. Like, the, the size of the you thing. You mean, like, the, like the flat bottom yes. and the, I yeah. gotcha. And where you can uh-huh. easily stand or, like, sit where you need uh-huh. to and, yeah. Right, because it's not going to tip. It's not, um, no. not a canoe or a Correct. kayak or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. It was also around this time that they met Emery and Ellsworth Kolb, Brothers with a photography studio on the Grand Canyon South Rim. That would be a good place to have a photography studio. Be a great place. <laughs> yeah, where do you live? Uh, the Grand Canyon. Yeah, what do you do? Photography. You, you take okay. pictures of it. Lots yes. of them. <laughs> Glenn and Bessie had hiked the Bright Angel Trail up to the rim of the canyon where the studio was. Emery took several photos of the hides, which are also used to fuel rumors. We'll take a look at some now. Um, so, yeah, we'll have these in just a second. One famous photo of the couple, taken by, taken by Kolb, shows them staring straight ahead with tense expressions, and this is frequently cited as evidence that there was tension between the Hydes by this point, especially after Unsolved Mysteries took the narrative that the two were not getting along. <laughs> it's important to remember that at this point in history, we were still transitioning from solemn to happy expressions in photography. That's mm. true. Uh, in the 19th century, most That's, people... Yeah. yeah. Most people only commissioned a photograph for a death portrait where a deceased person... We've, we saw we, that in that, that haunted tour. Show, tour yes. yeah. Um, where a deceased person, often That's a young so child, fucking, it is so grim, so fucking creepy too. was posed with their family while dressed in their Sunday Ugh. best, so photography to the average person was a solemn affair, yes. Yeah, it was and, like, it was like fucking like, it was like real life, like horror photography. Yes, it, it was very grim, <laughs> very, very <laughs> grim. Plus, um. <laughs> Just like, don't do that. Everybody knows somebody, and it's usually somebody's dad, and it's been my dad, too, who just, like, cannot smile in a photograph. You know, just absolutely hate having their picture taken, you know. So it has continued on. (laughs) Secondly... He's not going to give me a pip-pip cheerio. (laughs) We'll have him say cheerio the next time. There you go. Have him say it in uh, Scotland. There you go. <laughs> They'll love that. Though. Oh, yes. <laughs> we'll make so many friends. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, secondly, one, once people were more often photographed, smiling was considered a sign of mental instability. <laughs> oh, how weird. Well, to a degree, it still is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it depends on the photo. I guess so. Men in particular were often perceived to be perverts if they were smiling <laughs> in a photograph. 
maybe Ron DeSantis really best right, works yeah, in right? the, it, 100, 100 years ago. He really does. He actually does. His somebody, smile. Somebody mm. please invent a time machine specifically for that. Like, what's it going to be for to cure? All? Like, no, we're just sending Ron DeSantis back 100 years. If you smile, Ron, everyone will think you're a pervert. <laughs> and then yeah, and then we're destroying it. Photographers used to ask their subjects to frown. <laughs> this is so bizarre. Instead of being asked to say cheese, they were asked to say prunes. <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's etiquette. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, uh, custom too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, again, like uh, the when phones were first invented, like what's the greeting going to be? Right. It was, was going to be ahoy. It was between Almost. ahoy and hello. Like, mm. but. But if you but if it had been ahoy, we wouldn't know the difference. Would, exactly. Ahoy. You'd been like you you would have been like that's crazy. They wanted to make it hello. That sounds so stupid. Right. Ahoy. <laughs> ahoy, Dunder Mifflin. This is Pam. Right. <laughs> I mean, and there's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's odd. And right. with every uh, like, especially like a major technology like this, I mean, think with smartphones. There's been an etiquette with smartphones. Yeah. It's like you don't take pictures of people in vulnerable positions, like. Or you just don't take pictures of people without their permission right. these days. Right. If, if you're good about it, you don't you know, do that. Yeah. You know, whereas when, you know, picture phones first came out. Right. I mean, it was just like. Well, it's Holy okay because you couldn't see anything you in those couldn't. pictures. <laughs> it was like with, a block the, of pixels. With the one pixel. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. But like, uh, with new technology comes in etiquette. Like. Yeah, that's true. TV or radio, don't play it too loud. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that's true. Everybody say prunes. Prunes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Rather than be alarmed at Glenn and Bessie's serious expressions in this photo, it ought to be considered telling that a photo exists of them smiling at all. Kolb himself refers to the two photos as one formal, so typical of the time, and one with them smiling broadly. In my opinion, and of course it is only my opinion, they look much more posed in the photo where they aren't smiling, and their smiles and body language in the smiling photo looks to be the most more authentic of the two. They also requested to purchase both photos when they traveled by land back up the river at the end of their journey, and we have both pictures. Okay. They look shockingly modern. Look at this. Yeah, they, I mean, they do. Doesn't she look like very... Uh, like she could be she like looks one like of those. She's got uh, like a she's got like a Karen haircut almost. Just a little bit. And uh, he's got just like a like yeah, a lot like of times a, people like a brush cut as they used to call it. Yeah, you know? a lot of times people in old timey photos almost look like not average people. You know, like from right. today somehow they, they yeah. look different. These people she, look yeah. like they could exist today. Especially her, she looks like yeah, she looks like this could be a Facebook photo. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know. That is kind of strange for almost 100 years ago. But I agree. Like, this doesn't seem grim so much as formal. Correct. And yeah. this this seems, those seem like casual. genuine smiles. It seems yeah. casual. They don't seem to be forcing their smiles. No. There's no Ron DeSantis smiles here. <laughs> there, there, there isn't. <laughs> no Ron DeSantis smiles detected. <laughs> oh my goodness. The now gold standard for a human who can't my, behave like a human. My CPU says I can't smile. <laughs> no. On November 15th, Bessie wrote home, stating that they were halfway finished with their trip and would be to Needles in three weeks, well ahead of schedule. 
and saying that she wouldn't be able to write again until then. She also notes that, quote, we are supposed to have run all the bad rapids already, end quote. When the Hydes left the Kolb studio, hiking back down the canyon via the Bright Angel Trail, they were joined by Albert Gilbert Sutro. Albert Gilbert. Who would name their kid Albert Albert Gilbert? Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) Who had met the Wright brothers and set records for seaplane flight, altitude, duration, and cargo load. Okay. He asked to ride a day with the Hydes and then hike out at the next trail, which they accepted. They encountered terrible rapids, worse than what they were expecting, and when Sutra walked away from the Hydes to hike up to the rim, he didn't know that he would be the last person to see them alive. Say, yeah. wow. So this is the end of part one. Mm. Part two will include the search, the evidence, the rumors, why the majority of the rumors are absolute nonsense, why one might be correct, and what most likely happened. It's almost shocking how clear of a picture we can paint. We likely know exactly at what part of their trip things went wrong as well as why. The next page of this script... Oh, oh, okay. The next page of this script is the map included at the start of Dimmick's book, Sunk Without a Sound, that shows their route with notable points labeled to look at now and or next time. Probably next time, next time. since we'll be yeah. yeah picking it up there. But That'll be a good place to pick it up, too. Well, this is very interesting. Very I've never heard so. of any of this. Me neither. Um, if I have seen the Unsolved Mysteries, I sure don't remember it at all. I mean, I watched quite Maybe a few of those. Maybe as a kid, but... Yeah, when yeah. I was a teenager. Like yeah. A young teenager. Like, it was... Well, it was like the... Like the the conspiracy theorist show is like yes. unsolved mysteries because it's, everything is unsolved. It's all unsolved, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been Bigfoot, bro. As before, conspiracy theories just became like bizarre. Well, when they were just now. like occasionally on TV, like right. they didn't live in your pocket, mm-hmm. and then you could check up on them every now and yeah, you know, like anytime you want to. It was just like you know you had this and you had like some dude like on a ham radio somewhere that you right. could, they could kind uh-huh. of pick up. On a Friday night, if if the humidity was just right, right. <laughs> <laughs> the or, the original uh, podcasters. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> there was definitely a period where I wanted to. If it. Oh, me too. Wanted to do ham radio. Uh, yeah. One of the one been. of the most uh, criminally underrated teen movies of all time is uh, this movie called Pump Up the Volume. I've heard of it. Which stars none other than um, uh, I was going to say Christian Bale. No. Um. No, Christian. Uh, Christian Slater. Oh, okay. When he was okay. when he was young, <laughs> when he was Bale, when yes. he was like high school age, basically, or okay. like college age. Heather's uh, era, Christian Slater. Like a year later. Okay. Yes, it's called yeah. Pump up the volume. Yeah, and he was a ham radio. He was. Oh, okay. He he broadcasted like a local show. Oh, okay. To the to the he used like the high school's tower like somehow. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And, like, you could only listen to it in a certain area. Like, that kind right. of shit. Right, uh-huh. But you look back on it, it's like, that's like the original podcast movie right there. Yeah, <laughs> it's that's like... true, that's true. <laughs> to all five people who heard it, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if it, uh, I don't think it's that well-remembered, but it was a pretty damn good movie, so huh. check that one out. Right. Maybe we'll check it out. It's probably on fucking YouTube for free. It's it probably, I'm sure. Or on Tubi. Yeah. Now everything's oh, on Tubi yes. for free. Mm-hmm. Finally downloaded the damn thing. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Nicole. Yes, thank you this very is, much. This is going to be interesting. I'm very interested to hear, like, because so far I don't hear anything that would indicate, like, why would anybody kill anybody? Like, it's not, well, to me, it just sounds like 
they didn't have to. Like nature did that right? for they them. They did something really dangerous. Yeah, and that's what killed them. And that and what they were doing, people die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People die mountain biking. Yeah. People die skiing. Mm-hmm. Like even today. Yeah. 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 You know. Yeah. So it's. And the technology back then, I mean, let's face, look at the thing that they're on. Yeah. Know? I mean, it's... Yes, the scalp. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't think it's... I, I have a feeling that, that thing probably just comes apart, and then that's that. Mm, well, I guess we'll find out. I guess we will. So... We'll find out. <laughs> yes, thank you very much once again, Nicole. Um, this was The Deaths of Glenn and Bessie Hyde, part one. That's right. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.